Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast, and before we get to today's episode, I have some housekeeping. First, starting in January, Mage the Podcast will be rolling out a Patreon, as that's infinitely easier than whatever the heck Anchor is using. It will vastly simplify getting out our special episodes to supporters, automate Discord perks, and let us ask our executive producers hard-hitting questions like, where should we send your stuff to, and how should we pronounce your name? We'll make a formal announcement about the Patreon once it's ready. Second, we're looking for more paradigm experts. If you can speak competently about Gnosticism, Islam, Geomancy, East Asian alchemy, or something else we've not yet talked about, drop us a line at matesthepodcast at gmail.com or message me in Discord. It super helps if you're a practitioner of one of these belief sets or have an academic background in it because I don't want to step in it more than I inadvertently do already. If you have something you'd like to hear us cover, again, drop us a line. With that... Our guest today is Stephen Michael DePisa, who wrote for Mage Revised and Dark Ages Mage, as well as a slew of other systems. He's co-author of Blood Treachery and Tradition Book Order of Hermes, and today's conversation focuses on where he thinks the order would be in 2020, his writing experience for Mage, and where he thinks Mage can still go after 25 years. And with that, on with the show. So Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Gladly. Stephen Michael DePisa is, was an RPG writer who, at least to our fans, is probably best known for work on revised Dark Ages and then a bunch of other White Wolf lines. The ones that come to mind off the top of my head are you worked on Ascension. I think you did the Hell on Earth scenario. You did some work for Dark Ages Mage, the revised Order of Hermes, Infinite Tapestry, Blood Treachery, and Mage Storyteller Handbook. Did you actually work on those? I did indeed. And in addition to that, you did a great deal of work on Mage the Awakening. You were uh, one of the main writers or developer for that? I was a writer and I, yeah, I had one book that I developed. Yay. And I think also in addition to that, you worked on Aberrant. Uh, what other RPG work have you done? Uh, let's see. Well, uh, I did I did work on Aberrant. I had one, uh, one book that I worked on for that. I just kind of Dark Ages in general. For the Chronicles of Darkness, Arwolf, Changeling, Hunter, Mummy, uh, just kind of some general uh, general mortals stuff. Right now, the game that I'm kind of doing the most work for is Blue Rose for Green Ronin. Little little bit of work for the uh, second edition of Scion. Some stuff for the Dragon Age RPG. You know, just bits and bobs here and there over the past uh, twenty something years now. <laughs> how, how did you get into RPG writing? This is one of the stories I kind of remember best because I started playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was seven years old and I decided then I wanted to write RPGs for a living. I had just very recently graduated from college. I remember I was living in a just crappy little studio apartment and my friend Scott, who is actually the friend who had gotten me into Mage to begin with a couple of years before, contacted me to let me know that because he had known for a long time that I I wanted to write particularly Mage and that he was getting in touch with the then Mage developer Jess Heinig to ask if I could be brought in to help him meet deadline for the assignment he was currently working on for various reasons that just you know was wasn't quite coming together. Jess gave the okay I got my contract the very next day I rolled out of bed and sat down at my desk and wrote 12,500 words for blood treachery. Wow. (laughs) And then the day after was 10,000. And I kind of figured at that point I had a little over a week till deadline and about half of my word count was written. So I I figured I could kind of ease up a little bit and I dropped down to about three to three to 4,000 words a day for the rest of the time I had left till the first draft was due. So yeah, I mean, I ended up cranking out like... 50,000 words in a week and a half or something like that. 
I'm going to say that's not bad. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's funny. I look back on it now and I think we absolutely did some cool stuff with that book, but I can very much tell now that this was a freshman effort done at a breakneck pace. What are the tells to that? Like now with someone with a fair amount of experience. So Blood Treachery is the book that outlines the the Wizard's March declared by the Hermetics against the Tremere. Do you know where the idea of that book came from? As far as I know, and God, it's been a long, long, long time since uh, I talked with Scott about this, because I actually at the time never had any direct contact with Jess. Like I just basically got a contract and was like, here you go. You know, Scott was kind of the point of contact there. I'm pretty certain that it was largely just like an idea that came down from Jess. And I'm tempted to say that Justin Achille was the vampire developer at the time. And, you know, that that was probably like a roundtable thing that was hashed out between the developers and like kind of, kind of all the upper echelons uh, at White Wolf that, you know, is just like, hey, this, is, this would be a cool thing to do. Hmm. I could be completely off base, yeah. but I, I I think that's what was going on is that it was just like a, hey, this, this seems pretty cool. And I mean, like, honestly, I do think it was a really cool idea. And in that book that, as I said, it kind of outlines that war. When you drop those 50,000 words, the book is kind of clearly divided into the first half or a little bit less than the first half, which is done in the style of seemingly a Greek or a medieval drama. And then the second half, which is kind of everything else. Do you know whose idea it was to do that play style delivery for the first segment of the book? The Greek tragedy was all Scott's idea. Okay. And, And that is Scott Cohen? Scott Cohen. Yeah, I came okay. in and he had already like that was already what he was running with. And, you know, I kind of filled in bits and pieces here and there for that. And wherever anything needed doing that Scott hadn't already done, just started filling things in. And like we were talking on like a daily basis because I'd have to be like, OK, this, 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 this and this are done now. We ended up meeting up, got uh, probably I'd say like four or five times over the course of that week and a half. Like we get, you know, fortunately we, we lived basically like a town over from each other. Mm, okay. Everything computer-based was much clunkier then. So we were, you know, we would be sitting down with these massive reams of paper, like Scott had print out everything we had so far. We'd be going through it page by page and like literally redlining things for ourselves to go back and like correct them the next mm. day. We must have gone through like four or 500 uh, sheets of paper just getting that done. Because, yeah, we'd print it up and then we'd you know get kind of a corrected manuscript and print that up. And then that would get thrown away. And it was like absolute chaos. I think we made something that was very interesting and kind of in a way it was kind of unprecedented for the, the world of darkness to date. What about it do you feel made it unprecedented? I mean, definitely the tragedy, the uh, the Greek tragedy aspect of it that that Scott came up with, like, I thought that was just absolutely brilliant. And it was kind of this very, very dedicated crossover book, you know, where it was like the whole point of this is interactions between two different splats and how that impacts the larger world of darkness. I don't think anything like that had been done previously, really. Yeah, there were vague crossover books beforehand, but they were more or less, here's something like uh, Axis Mundi. Here's a bunch of spirits yeah. that mage could use. Here's a bunch of spirits that werewolves can use. It's not on how we- mages and werewolves necessarily interact. Yeah, and I mean, there was the whole the whole deal with Sam Hate, but he kind of like bounced from line to line. That's also one of those things where you can just simply say he's Sam Hate, and I feel like that's a reasonable uh, totality of the conversation that needs to be had about that topic. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> Do you feel it landed well? Are you happy with what came out the other end? 
I am. I'm very happy with how it went. I mean, like, I'm both happy with it on its own merits. And again, like, I look back now and I think, I haven't looked at the book in years now, but like, uh, I can think back on it and say, there are probably some things I would have done differently, some differences in tone, particularly that I would have written differently and things like that. But overall, like, I think it was a, a well put together book and it's got kind of this nostalgic fondness for me. This was when I really broke into writing for gaming it was my lucky break and i got to do something that i thought was pretty grand it was on this like large scale within the setting itself you had mentioned that you had seen mage and then declared to yourself i want to write for this what about mage did you like and again this this goes back to scott like when i was in college being my kind of circle of friends in in college and scott scott was one of them he was a, in graduate classes i was an undergrad you know we mostly played like Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the Apocalypse, uh, Second Ed Dungeons and Dragons. And Mage kind of slipped into the rotation along with Changeling as, you know, something we did for one shots. Then uh, September of 97, it was my senior year, Scott started up this chronicle that he called Motives. And, you know, it was a Mage Chronicle. And it was just magnificent from beginning to end. Like it was, it was this flawlessly executed Mage Chronicle. And if I remember correctly, we put it like every Thursday, basically through my entire senior year. And it wrapped up right around graduation time. When we were playing that, I, I really got the sense of like, this is the sort of thing Mage is capable of. This grandiose kind of globe spanning interdimensional story of, you know, generally like heroism and hope, which was, you know, that was kind of a, that was a new thing for someone who was very used to playing in kind of the other settings of the world of darkness. That chronicle kicked off a bunch of other chronicles that some of which Scott ran, some of which I ran. I've still got plans for like interconnected kind of chronicles going back to this that I intend to run at some point in the future. Uh, so are you actively still running or interested in running Mage? I do have some plans for running Mage. The last Chronicle I ran, I'm going to say wrapped up probably three years ago, hmm. something like that. Uh, and it was actually based out of this same setting. And it's it's kind of fascinating when you have a game that's been around this long where you, know, you have characters who are coming in a whole generation later. <laughs> I remember doing the math to figure out that Dante is about to turn 60. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, he's not that far from getting double ARP. That's that's yeah. kind of interesting. <laughs> And you worked on the the game during Revised, which I, I find it interesting that when people talk about the game, they seem to forget that Revised had the most books. Like it was mm -hmm. of, of the times, it was the largest uh, chunk, quite simply, of Mage history. Do you have any particular feelings about how Mage was set up in Revised, maybe ver versus M20 or, or the second edition that came before it? It's interesting because in a lot of ways, I feel like I, I feel like I ended up being the writer who, with Jess's implicit blessing, kind of went the direction most opposite from where Revised was in terms of tone and mood. I remember seeing the proto-teaser announcement for uh, Revised Mage with, uh, you know, the tagline, Technocracy Triumphant. I was like, mm, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> You know, there was that whole sense in Revised that the Ascension War is over. You know, I end up getting the Order of Hermes book. I can't see any reasonable argument why the Order of Hermes, of all people, would accept the idea that they had lost a war when any of them are still alive. Yeah. 
And Revised was kind of interesting because it was very internally inconsistent with that. Because on one end, it said the technocracy won. In another place, it says nobody won. In another place, it says the technocracy has crushed everyone. And in another place, it says, but now they leave everyone else alone, more or less, so that they can tend to their own things. I think that's an artifact of, you know, as you were mentioning, that it was kind of the the most books of any edition of Mage, that this was kind of the era of the content treadmill. Uh, where you just needed to be cranking up book after book after book. And so you had writers who were simultaneously, you know, you three or four books being worked on simultaneously, and there's just no way for writers to effectively coordinate between each other, between different projects. You had these shifts in tone and mood and idea, and like you had everyone's different interpretations of it. And kind of my interpretation was, no way in hell are the traditions going to lie down and die. They're going to fight this to the bitter end. At the very least, some of them are. And I think the Order of Hermes was kind of, they were kind of the poster child for that. You know, it's was like, we, we started the traditions. This war is not over till we say it is. And you did the two books in Revise that most banged on about the Order of Hermes, which would probably be Blood Treachery and Order of Hermes. Did you consider that to be, on their behalf, something that was fundamentally noble or something that was hubristic or both? <laughs> I think that the revisitation of the never quite annulled Wizards March was a terribly hubristic idea. I think it was a colossally awful decision on the Order's part. Story-wise, I think it was magnificent. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a classic Order of Hermes. Like, uh, well, you know, magic's not working as well anymore. We got to blame somebody for this. And Tremere, the last we remember, they had, you know, their magic worked fine. Like, maybe we should go take their magic. It was an awful idea. And it was awful in a wonderfully archetypally hermetic way <laughs> as to the stuff that the kind of the fallout in the order of hermes uh, revised tradition book i remember you know, getting to do stuff like working on the houses and getting to do like house uh, titulus and the idea that you know, they had been sullied by this vampiric blood problem and like they were always like kind of the order's tacticians and master strategists In a lot of ways it kind of i i thought of them as in terms of the traditions, they were kind of the backbone of the Ascension War. And these guys had screwed up big time. That was kind of an interesting thing. You're kind of at ground level for this potential housewide redemption story. They had achieved such amazing things, holding the technocracy at bay over the centuries, and then to have fallen so far so quickly. So one of the things about the revised tradition books is they're bigger. The previous ones were generally 60 to 70 pages, and the last 10 pages of those were usually character archetypes and so on. And here we got something that was had a little bit more space. What was it like getting to redefine or update a tradition? It, it was daunting because, I mean, I think the Order of Hermes was, you know, in a sense, they're kind of what people think of when you think of archetypal kind of Western occultism. The original Order of Hermes tribe book for second edition, it was just so tight and so well-researched, even for a book that was comparatively so small. I remember having to go out and like, okay, I got to pick up a whole bunch of books for research purposes and you know I, I spent a lot of time you know delving the the dubious halls of of internet research at the time because you know again it was just a lot of the stuff there was kind of like okay i don't know how seriously i can take the information on this geocities page 
yeah. <laughs> with, with the single gif at the top that was a rotating yeah. pentacle and with a little yeah. uh, under construction icon that was <laughs> a little, little like little animated skull breathing flame or something uh-huh. yeah like, yeah you know, there were still people who were doing things like uh transcribing the, the entire emerald tablet just in raw text form online and so you know, you'd have to kind of slog through that stuff to get all this information to you know kind of put together something that would feel like an accurate form of hermeticism in a world where the rules of magic are thus and so Hmm. it was very exciting i mean i got to i remember kind of having that feeling like oh my god i'm working on a book with the phil bricado and then then as it turned out he and i like didn't really end up talking to each other over the course of working on the book we kind of just we were kind of in this like single-minded professional isolation each of us working on our respective sections he and i never even ended up talking until years and years later like the very first time we heard each other's voices was a couple of years ago when I was working on Technocracy Reloaded. Oh, I didn't realize that you're in that. Yep. yep. When you're doing something like a tradition book, how much direction did you get from the, the line developers? Or was it just like, hey, Order of Hermes, new trad book, question mark? Or do you get like an outline? What does that process look like, if you remember any of it? If I'm remembering correctly, I think there were a very few few very broad strokes and then it was largely come back to me with your ideas and you know kind of develop the outline that more that way i think there was a general like okay this is this is the the setup like you know you have kind of your you know history where are things now chapter on rules you know it was the the basic like the basic division of the book the template and then it was a lot of okay well where do you want to take this and what do you want to do with it and, you know, I know getting to write the sub-factions was a lot of fun. The rotes was, I, there were only a few rotes in there. I, actually, I think I wrote more rotes in Blood Treachery than I did in the Army Strad book. And they're great rotes, by the way. <laughs> they are impractical often, but flavorful. And I appreciate that as a rote. <laughs> I, I, to this to this day, I, I honestly think the Oak of Sanguine Root is probably my best rote that I, I ever designed the idea of like why wouldn't a mage come up with an idea to just grow a tree in a vampire's heart if they had to fight vampires yeah the universal fu wrote also where your blood bursts into flames like several days after you've been consumed i thought this was one of the top three fu's mages ever produced i didn't think i wrote that one that might have been scott i don't think that one was me i know i did that one and i came up with the one where you're just calling shafts of sunlight from elsewhere in the world Mm -hmm. If you were to update the Order of Hermes to 2020, what do you think that would look like? Do you think they would be doing well? Do you have any feeling of a house that might be doing exceptionally well or exceptionally poorly? If someone were to be like, hey, Stephen, we want to do a Order of Hermes 2020 or 2022 book. Do you have any thought of how you think that the house might, the order may have changed over the past 20 years? I think the order would be doing well. I think it would be doing quite well, probably despite itself in a lot of ways. I think the order would would be not terribly thrilled about things like, you know, yeah, we got we got a whole crop of like, you know, Harry Potter kids who are mm-hmm. now like, you know, now hermetic mages. But, you know, look, we got to take what we can get here. Yeah. <laughs> if I had to think of houses that are doing poorly, I would expect that I think this is not House Flambeau's era. I think this is not the right world in which basically be a magical terrorist who uses explosions to uh, get their way. I also think House Quasitor would probably be in the midst of a lot of soul searching with kind of our 
2020s emphasis on studying the mechanics and the uh, the inequalities of law enforcement. Because, you know, I think that fundamentally hermetics, like everybody else, are people. And, you know, they're subject to the prejudices and the biases that people kind of grow up in and into which they're uh, enculturated by their respective societies. And I don't think that the order would be, in a sense, any more enlightened about magical law enforcement than we are with mundane law enforcement. They'd still have to unlearn a lot of what they'd learned. Aquab, all Quasitors are bastards. I want to see that on a, uh, a scroll, <laughs> scrawled on a wall in the ruins of Duizatep somewhere. I think they would be a lot more sincere about correcting the problems, because I do think that that people come to House Quasitor out of a sincere desire to do justice, as mm-hmm. opposed to like, I sure like the idea of bossing people around with a gun. Uh, Bring Titleist back into things. Yeah. One of the things that has also been reshuffled is in Revised, we had the introduction of the Nagoma and of the, the Solificati, uh, the, the Children of Knowledge, into the Order of Hermes. What did you think about that move, the integration of the crafts? I very much liked the idea of the Children of Knowledge being pulled in. I did appreciate with the 20th anniversary being like, okay, so you have a House Solificati in the Order of Hermes and you have the Children of Knowledge who are a craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it made sense to me that not everybody was going to go one way or the other. The Ngoma, ah, I was less less enthused about that because I, I I think the Order of Hermes, particularly the, the founding of the traditions, did an awful lot of like, eh, I don't really know what you people do, but you go over there. Yeah. <laughs> and that I think that kind of felt much the same where the Order is like, eh, you guys do like high ritual magic stuff. I guess we can make you a house of Hermes why not mm-hmm. when in reality I think the Ngoma really deserve to be as they are in 20th edition their own kind of independent entity I was also kind of mystified and revised why the Wu uh, why the Wulong shacked up with the Akashics rather than with the Hermetics yeah and I mean there was I think there was a what was it Hermetic house Honglei I believe it was uh which I think was some of the Wulong I think there there was a lot of drive to just with revised kind of dispense with the craft as independent entities and like okay so you just go here there or wherever and some of those were uh an an inelegant fit at best uh you know the idea that you kind of had the Wulong hanging out with their traditional enemies it was probably not the best idea. Yeah, I, I certainly understand the drive to kind of simplify things, but <laughs> there is there is such thing as too much parsimony. I agree. I think that we have a much better setup with Mage 20, where mm-hmm. you have this like vast, magically diverse world with you know the traditions, the technocratic union, you have kind of the disparate alliance, you have independent crafts. I think it's a lot more the way the world of Mage should look. It's not a simple world. And, you know, of course, it's also like a 700-page book to illustrate that it's not a simple world. Yeah. I, <laughs> I also do an Exalted podcast, which I find interesting that I have gravitated towards the two White Wolf games that have over 675-page core rulebooks. So yeah. I, I, I'm being typecast in that regard. Um, <laughs> the other thing that comes to mind that you did a bunch of work on was Infinite Tapestry, which yes. uh, was a big update to Book of Worlds. But in addition to that, it outlined for the first time kind of umbral courts. 
So yep. the idea that there are entities and such, the, the two things we've talked about so far, the traditions and the Umbra, are still two very uh, two things that we have very little information on as of Mage 20th. Uh, so for some background, uh, what do you remember of working on Infinite Tapestry or what you're proud of or what you tried to accomplish with that? As I recall, I wasn't involved with the courts, but I did like I did like the the systems for the courts. I did some stuff with disembodiment and you know kind of the mechanics around that, because I know there was a drive with revised to bring everything back kind of to the street level of mage. Mm -hmm. You couldn't really have people traipsing around other realities and still have that feeling like everybody yeah you know, this this is the world you have to you have to work with. I did some of the. See, I did some of the wonders for it. It's funny. This is actually one of the books I kind of least remember. Okay. Um, uh, like I, I distinctly remember doing the uh, was it the Ravana skin or whatever it was that uh, that wonder because I was I like making horrible <laughs> things for games and I thought okay yeah you know, here's a tan skin from the uh, from the destruction of the Ravnos Antediluvian let's turn that into a wonder and just do you know absolutely awful things mm -hmm. with it. It's terribly useful, though. <laughs> it, it is. And, you know, I, I kind of like the idea that it's like, oh, this thing is gross and I don't want it, but it's so useful. And, yeah, getting to do the the disembodiment stuff, like I, I remember I did um, the bit where dream speakers could kind of sequester part of their soul inside their totem to stave off disembodiment. Mm -hmm. My argument at the time was, you know, I can understand trying to cut mages off from the umbra as much as possible but if you cut the dream speakers off from the umbra you're basically telling them oh you guys don't have a shtick anymore i guess you can just be like sad people who can't do the thing you do yeah. and yeah I, I thought that wasn't cool so we needed something that let dream speakers have kind of their own unique means of improved access to the umbra hmm. Ravana Skin is, uh, as, as Stephen mentioned, is a seven-point wonder that does a bunch of stuff. It gives you the Storm Warden merit, kind of. It lets you step sideways without having uh, to deal to deal with things. And it has, a, I think, a few other benefits to it and is made of those who died in the wake of the rising of the Antediluvian in Bangladesh. If you were to update the Umbra for 2020, do you have any ideas on what you would want that to look like? I kind of have a stab at high concept more than more than specifics. I think a big part of what I would do with updating the Umbra would be first thing would be hiring up a whole battery of cultural consultants to talk about different cultures, traditional visions of the spirit world and what that might look like. I would probably work from that and work backwards to the to the game and figure out how to make the Umbra in the game reflect these cultural understandings of uh, of of spirit uh, of their world of their interactions with each other. Uh, so I mean I think that yeah the short answer is uh, yes I, I do have an idea of what I would do but no I don't I don't know any of the specifics because it would involve people who have all kinds of expertise I don't. Uh, but basically you would want a, a big meaty slice of all the cultures whose idea of places that are not the mud ball have not yet really been represented in Mage too much. Yeah, and in the world of darkness in general. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, Mage coming after Werewolf inherited the Umbra that Werewolf had, which was a very specific, you know, singular take on the spirit world. And then you kind of had to say, well, Mages live in this same world. They have a different cosmology, but we've already established the spirit world. So this is the spirit world mages have. And it's interesting because we don't even, the, the high Umbra is never 
well populated like it it seems to be one of the few things that is almost that tries to be free of cultural baggage where it is just kind of this generic place of human ideas that seem to have proliferated across cultures and it, it seems to be the one case where paradigm hasn't heavily intruded except for maybe in the spires or maybe in the courts or something like that so yeah i would, I would certainly be curious to see what that refreshed uh, high umber specifically would wind up looking like. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that a case could be made for solidly making a single umbra that okay. would just have this like tremendous spectrum of places and things and ideas. Like you know, you wouldn't really have a separate high, middle, low umbra. It would all be one thing. But our understanding of those things may be entirely separate because we, you know, we as people out, say, oh, kind of as characters would not have that comprehensive understanding of this other world. And most of the entities that dwell there wouldn't have it because, you know, the same way that I don't know what life is like in Salamanca, Spain. Mm-hmm. So I've never been there. I'm, I'm not a citizen there. So it's, it's a different place. The culture is different. And I think that you could make a strong case for umbral entities would not understand each other's culture the same way that you know humans have to go places to learn things about other people hmm. uh, so so rather than it being three separate umbrae it's almost different parts of kind of the same unified thing that yeah there's the the dead tend to to congregate over here but it's not necessarily metaphysically it, it is something you can walk from one to the other as it were as opposed to uh, yes. having to take but it, yeah. may be in the umbra, it may not be that you walk in a straight line with a map yeah yeah, that would also help unify the fact that the high, middle, and low umbra all have kind of heaven and hell analogs to them, in mm-hmm. some way. They all have they all have a good place. They all seemingly have a bad place and such. Is there anything else that you, if someone were to tap you on the shoulder and say, "Hey, we need another book for X twenty for for Mage twentieth," that you would be like, "Yes, this is the book I would like to see written or help write." The book I would most want to write if, you know, if out of nowhere I was told like, okay, we're, we're contracting one more book for, for Mage 20 and we want you to tell us what it's going to be. If I had to pick, I would actually probably say that I would want to write a pretty huge book of crafts. We have a whole bunch of crafts that get mentioned in Mage 20 that we don't have any more information about them than that. Was it the, the Red Thorn etiquettes, for instance, the, uh, you know, kind of the, the awakened Bahari, you know, the Lilith worshippers? We don't, we don't know anything about them other than their name and that they're really into Lilith. And I would, I would love to do something with them. A whole slew of uh, the, the people who are being considered for membership in the Disparate Alliance. Other crafts that I think, or you know, disparate crafts that I think would make sense to exist that maybe we haven't had an opportunity to touch on yet. Hmm. Yeah, it's still one of those things where, despite advances, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Indian subcontinent are, are still very lightly touched in Mage. And I, I hope there is uh, time remaining enough in M20 or in a soon M5 to fill in that rather vast area of emptiness on, on the canvas. Do you like the idea of the Disparate Alliance? Or you... I, I absolutely love the idea of the Disparate Alliance. I mean, in my own uh, my own chronicles, I run a little differently with it. I don't have it as a secret organization. Uh, you know, I run with it as kind of a, I don't know that I want to say have it uh, as co-equal with the, uh, with the traditions of the technocracy, because I don't think that the traditions and the technocracy stand on equal footing. You know, an open alliance of, of these crafts that are like, okay, yeah, we're, we're not either of you. We have our own things going on, you know. The, the traditions are, and you know, understandably, as kind of an artifact of first edition, they're very Eurocentric overall. 
I think in retrospect, that actually makes a lot of sense because the Order of Hermes was in many ways the driving force behind bringing the traditions together. And it's a, a kind of a, a happy accident of these were the forms of mysticism with which the earliest mage writers were most familiar because you have the Order of Hermes being, you know, not to mince words, being amazingly arrogant and saying, okay, well, these are the kinds of magic we're familiar with. These are the people that, uh, you know, get a tradition. Then we have all of you people over there that do, uh, I guess, spirit stuff. None of you really look as pale as we are, so I guess you can all be one tradition. Again, it was kind of like a ugh, thing, but it was also, it was very much an order, a medieval, late medieval, you know, kind of Renaissance Order of Hermes thing to do. Yeah, it's one of those things where it is cringeworthy, but it is reasonable in the sense yeah. that if you were that person in that time, that is probably the choice you would make. You like the idea that there is the traditions which encounters that kind of clusters around this narrower, uh, maybe historically slightly frozen definition of, of what magic is. And then there is this other organization that consists kind of of everyone else in the form of the Disparate Alliance. Am I interpreting what you're saying correctly? Yeah, that I, I like this idea that, you know, the, this... These are the people that the order overlooked. And in some cases, like we actually have bits and pieces of information that the order outright spurned some of these people during yeah. the uh, the Grand Convocation, that they have built their own thing for the protection and the dissemination of their own mystic beliefs. Again, and that's that's largely what the Disparate Alliance is in, uh, in you know, the 20th anniversary edition. It's just that I, I kind of like them operating openly. Okay. Would you rather that or a new version of the traditions that kind of includes everyone that has a much broader tent? Do you, do you think the game benefits from having those two separate organizations or, or that the game would get more interesting if uh, we refactored it as it were, and kind of stuck with the nine entities as it were, but, but there was kind of space in it for everyone. I think really compelling arguments can be made for both scenarios. I'm always a big fan of, you know, people having to broker alliances with factions not their own. Mm -hmm. So I do like the idea of the traditions and the disparates occasionally having to work together to kind of leverage power against the vastly more powerful technocracy. I think a strong argument can also be made for re-envisioning the traditions as a more fully inclusive group. Mm -hmm. Though I don't know that you could limit it to nine at that point. I think you might have to kind of start throwing away hermetic the hermetic numerology that was used to found the traditions. Yeah. There comes a point where you have to create umbrellas so broad that you are, you are kind of erasing the distinctiveness of the, the groups beneath them. If we were to go forward with this nowadays, we would need to be much more sensitive to the, to the cultural practices and the ideas and kind of respect everyone's distinct magical identity. I don't know that you can do that with nine traditions because okay. I think there is going to be a lot of like cramming round pegs into square holes at that point. Hmm. Okay. Uh, one of the things I very much liked about certain books within Revised is it very much presented traditions as a combination of what do you think one must do to ascend, plus it being kind of a political party more than anything mm -hmm. else? I, I like to, these, I, I don't want to say the removal of the association between culture and tradition, but the loosening of the tie between the two. So I, I very much enjoy 
the intellectual exercise of if we did this again, how could it roll out? And my first argument on the internet with Stephen was actually over the question of what would mage look like if it had been the five mystic traditions or if it had mm -hmm. been the, the, the seven. And your thing out of the gate was you're going the wrong way. There should be 18 or, or something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, huh. This is a person I need to have on my show. So let's let's cross our fingers that we get a, a, a crafts or a disparate book. Do you think it makes sense in M20 for there to be groups that just don't involve themselves in the Ascension War? Do you, or do you think it's a world now where pretty well everyone is involved in the Ascension War, whether they realize it or not? I do believe that that, that latter is the case. But I think that there are people who will be involved in the war, who will nevertheless do their damnedest not to be aware that they are. You know, that you will have groups that are doing doing their best to remain neutral and that it will become increasingly difficult to do so. We've talked a bunch about Mage at this point. Do you have any more thoughts on either any of the work you did, regrets you have, books you would have liked to have seen written, or where you would like to see the line go, possibly with a, a Mage 5th edition? I can't say that I have any regrets. I was I was very happy with the work that I got to do on Mage overall. You know, if if I did have a regret, it's that like I would have loved to have worked on, you know, ten times as many books as I did. Hmm. In terms of where fifth edition goes, I really do think that that the twentieth anniversary edition was the definitive word on what Mage the Ascension as we know it is. And I think if you're going to do fifth edition you kind of got to go a different direction. You've got to make it into an entirely different animal. And I don't know what shape that would take. I couldn't even begin to speculate on what, what you should do with that. You know, it would have to be fundamentally very different from what, uh, what we already know, because I don't, I don't think you can take Mage the Ascension as we currently know it any further without making it less than what it is now. I think it's, we kind of got a perfected edition of Ascension as it has been up till now. It's one of those things with like a lot of artistic movements. You can't have Renaissance painting after Raphael, in my opinion. You need to, you need to go somewhere else. We get mannerism or what have you. I haven't followed 5th edition too closely, but I know that like, uh, for instance, Vampire went thematically kind of a, a very different route. I know there was a whole thing about, you know, we're, we're not tracking blood points so much anymore as, you know, we're thinking about the hunger. And I think that once you start getting into things like that, you're, you know, I think the mage analog for that would not be uh, quintessence, but paradox and kind of, yeah, just being out of sync with consensus reality. And I, th I think, again, there are interesting things you can do with that, but you have to go in, in decidedly different directions than mage to date has gone. To me, the, the two areas where Mage could go but hasn't really is in the direction of a very strategic and domain level play where we are generals in the war for reality. It is almost a and a d ish birthright level of play mm -hmm. where you're trying to control the thought sphere of a, of a city or a nation or something like that. Or the very intimate, those those tiny moments of magic being in the world in a way that is new and wonderful to its creator and probably terrifying to the people around, and how to have that discourse with your avatar and figure out your place in the cosmos. Those are the two directions I want to see Mage go, and you can't do both. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you mentioned kind of the domain level thing, and it's, that actually strikes me as being very similar to kind of the, the general thrust of uh, Chronicles of Darkness, you know, where 
things were brought down kind of to a more local level, that much of the storytelling occurred within your community, uh, as opposed to kind of the, uh, you know, the Jack Kirby-esque high cosmic weirdness you could get into with Ascension. Like Awakening was a lot more of the politics between the cabals in your city and things like that. Yeah, so I, th I think, you know, there is, there's a valid template for that that's already kind of out there. And speaking yeah. speaking of that work, you have also worked on two, what I'll say, cousins to Mage the Ascension. One was Dark Ages Mage, which is fascinating and beautiful, and I know nearly nothing about it. Um, and the, <laughs> the other is Mage the Awakening. With Dark Ages Mage, what was that like? Somewhere along the line, I, I'm not exactly sure where this happened. I, I got to be a rules guy. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I've done a fair number of interviews where writers have that line. Somehow I became the person known for this and I'm not sure how. Um, so well, sorry. <laughs> I, I specifically often got tasked with rules that are like, so we don't have a firm idea of how you're going to do this, but here's what we need you to do. <laughs> and for Dark Ages Mage, it was, so you need to take basically all the utility of the spheres and you need to condense them into six separate schools of magic that are 8,000 words a piece. And this refers to the the pillar and the foundation system, the idea yeah. in, uh, can you give us like a, a, a short explanation of kind of how magic works in Dark Ages Mage? I think in a sense, like we were trying to work with kind of more primitive idea of magic as it was in Ascension, where you, know, you had, rather than Arate, you had your respective magical traditions foundation, as I recall, like the order of Hermes was will. You know, this is the basis of their magic, the will of the individual, the your ability to impose your wishes on the world around you. And then you had pillars, which were, you know, they were, you know, li literally the pillars that held up your magical worldview. So like the old faiths were based on the seasons, kind of the wheel of the year and things like that. And you had to be able to do every kind of magic that that paradigm would support within that one foundation and those four pillars. And again, you know, we're taking it down from Arate and nine spheres to one foundation and four pillars. Plus each of these is also like a scant fraction of the amount of word count that was dedicated to the spheres. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was harrowing. <laughs> and I know, I know a lot of, a lot of stuff slipped between the cracks there because it was just, there was only, there's only so much of everything you can put in 8,000 words. Hmm. You know, that's part of, you know, part of why a bunch of other stuff came out in the grimoire. I remember that somebody, it wasn't me, but somebody, you know, did the, the brilliant craftsmasons uh, write up for the grimoire that uh, included the, the materia pillar all based off the hermetic, uh, the hermetic paradigm. Hmm. Because I had, like, I had completely neglected things like changing lead into gold in my, you know, kind of my hurry to think of the, you know, this high concept hermetic stuff of slinging fireballs and summoning angels and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of stuff to cram into a, a comparatively very small amount of word count. Do you wish the Dark Ages Mage had gotten more, like had gotten additional books? I think it would have been fascinating to do. I, I think it would have also been, it would have been a pain. There would have been a lot of research because I think a lot of what would have ended up happening would have been other magical fellowships, some of which would be ex back then particularly extremely hard to research. Chronicle books that you'd have to account for the, the inf near infinite utility of awakened magic. I think it would have been cool 
Uh, I don't know that it would have been cool to be someone who had to write them. Yeah, uh, great to have, hard to, hard to get. So I'm I'm only passingly familiar with Dark Ages Mage, but it is it is beautiful to see what happens after we have 10 years of mage under our belts. So the game mm-hmm. comes out in 93. Dark Ages Mage comes out in 2002. They're about, you've got Jesse Heinig, Bill Bridges, Craig Blackwelder, and just a lot of these people that when I think RPGs to some extent, I think those names. And they got to write a mage. It is it is beautiful and different, and I may be biased in its favor because it was one of the last mage books to have art by Quentin Hoover in it. Rest in peace. I don't know how much time you still have, but if you do have any, I would love to talk about your work with Mage the Awakening. What a strange, wonderful creature Awakening is. It was very interesting. Like I, I was not one of the people kind of hashing out you know, the high concept of that. I wasn't one of the shot callers, but I was kind of in the passenger seat while a lot of this was being sussed out. And I got to periodically throw my two cents in or ask confounding questions. There is at least certainly the better part of one whole iteration of Awakening that is now buried under the sands of time and will never see the light of day. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, as kind of the, the process of figuring out how to make this distinct from ascension was being sorted out you know the better part of one whole iteration of awakening was developed and you had word count for various aspects of it kind of banged out and then it was back to the drawing board to make something that was more distinct from ascension you know in retrospect it was absolutely the right call but you know it's just kind of fascinating getting to see how the sausage was made when it came to designing a game line that was specifically meant to be, you know, a spiritual successor to a previous game line. Yeah, I mean, I was actually with the the original, you know, the Mage the Awakening core book. My my big thing was, you know, again, the surprise, surprise, the, uh, the Arcana. I was kind of tasked with writing those. What are the Arcana? The Arcana are the, you know, they're, you know, Mage, made Ascension players would think of them as the spheres. You know, there's 10 of them as opposed to nine because, mm-hmm. you know, basically, the, the easiest way to put it is entropy was broken into death and fate. And and also which, numerically, five is kind of the recurring number in, in Chronicles of Darkness. So uh, 10, every group gets two that they're real good at and one that they're real bad at. So it, it, it helps narratively in that way, too. Yeah, it was, it was like a really fascinating process. And it, it was weird, like just having entropy broken out into these two arcana of, of death and fate created so like such a, a broad untapped playing field to start coming up with these concepts of things you could do that didn't feel like entropy but did feel like they could be death or fate mm-hmm. i remember like having to send emails to like bill bridges and you know asking about you know, this that and the other and you know like okay so what do we want this arcanum to do what do we want this to do and i remember uh, particularly like there was the idea that we wanted time to be more i guess robust than it was in ascension where we wanted to be able to affect things backward in history without automatically blowing up the mage and like how do we how do we do that how do we accomplish retroactive changes to you know the flow of time without just completely destroying the ability to have a coherent chronicle out of the blue the idea of temporal sympathy hit me you were just as you were connected to things in uh, in space by your familiarity with them so you were connected to things in time you know you couldn't go back to the battle of hastings and change history there because you have no connection to it you know it was a lot easier to change things in your own life than it was to change things in your friends' lives and things like that. I remember one question that I asked that I don't I don't know that it ever actually the answer ever made it into any official publications. 
where I was talking about uh, matter and or life and the idea of taking hazardous things and turning them into safe things and then letting the duration expire after you'd turn, say, a pound of sand into a pint of blood for a transfusion. Well then. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, or like, you know, yeah, here, drink this cup of Pepsi in one hour, it'll be strychnine. And, you know, the idea of like, I remember Bill getting back to me like, oof, yeah, no, that's how that would work. <laughs> <laughs> and like we we never put it in a book because yeah i think for obvious reasons yeah uh you know players figured it out that would be fine but uh you know the idea of just kind of bringing every chronicle to a screeching halt with somebody being like that's not air you've been breathing it's chlorine gas yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so one interesting thing in the old world of darkness, and Matthew Dawkins on the record said this recently, and I, I thank him endlessly for saying this, is all the games in old world of darkness, or at least the big five, are all uh, gothic horror games or personal horror games, except for Mage, which is an urban fantasy game. And mm -hmm. that is the way I have always taken it. And that is me. And some people think I am off. What kind of game in terms of genre do you feel uh, Mage the Awakening lends itself to? I think it's probably like best played as an occult thriller you know and you can kind of take that in what direction of thriller you want to go you can absolutely do like a political thriller you can do like who murdered the hierarchy you know you can you know you, you can go your your nick cage national treasure route of like you know yes we're we're the mages of washington dc and we need to figure out the geomantic puzzle that was built at the heart of this city when it was constructed you know and again that comes back to the largely local focused street level mindset that went into the the chronicles of darkness where you're not looking at the kind of like and the world might be destroyed scales that, you know, you, that you regularly had to deal with, with like antediluvians and, you know, oracles and whatnot. That's probably where I, where I would primarily go with it, where I would look for like kind of tight character focused sort of thriller genre stories. Uh, you know, you're more looking at things like rather than the hermetic who is like, you know, well, I have to be off to horizon, better pack my bags. I'll try to bring you back a baby Griffin. You know, it's a lot more, you have, uh, you know, your Mysterium mage who is, living at home because you can't it's hard to be a mystagogue and hold a job at the same time and you know meanwhile taking care of your sick father you're looking at more i don't want to say fundamentally human stories but i think stories that exist on a more familiar scale set against the backdrop of this you know gnostic prison for the souls of the unenlightened forced upon us all by these uh these god kings from before recorded time and unlike the mage god kings, they are almost unkillable god kings because they are the idea of things. Yeah. Someone was talking about how they much preferred the seers of the throne as an enemy versus the omnipresence of the technocracy. I'm like, the technocracy is not the very idea of oppression. You can you can knock over the technocracy. You will never destroy the concept of subjugation. Just putting that one out there. <laughs> but well, it's, um, it's it's fascinating to me because I actually I kind of always thought of the seers of the throne and the exarchs as being a more ideologically pure technocracy. Mm -hmm. Regardless of my motivation for doing it, if there are ten ways to accomplish a thing and i want to take away nine of them so you can only do the one i prefer i'm a tyrant now it doesn't matter if my motivation is because i am you know because i'm a god emperor of the universe and this is my rightful due or because i think it's better and safer for you and you know i think i have always thought of the exarchs as kind of technocratic control without the self-deception of doing this for the good of the little people hmm. and uh, can you give a quick overview of who the seers of the throne are then if if you can 
The technocracy is interesting because because it is up, even up to its leadership, you know, kind of the the enigmatic control. It is still made of people, um, unless of course you're kind of going with the other options that are presented. But kind of at the core, I generally think of technocratic control as being these old, out of touch, uh, you know, masters and archmasters living in you know their islands of Doctor Moreau and their like clock punk personal horizon realms and things like that. They are people, and people can be reasoned with, and people can be dealt with in the ways we think of dealing with people. With the seers of the throne, you know, you have the exarchs who are kind of these ineffable masters of reality who are definitely nothing like human anymore. And the seers are still people who have the desires uh, and the needs that people have, but are also, in a sense, armatures of these esoteric concepts of subjugation and oppression. A technocrat will be defined by things like, I'm a progenitor, I am working on advancing the timetable in such a way that you know, we can permanently cure Lou Gehrig's disease and you know it sticks in the in the consensus you know a, a seer of the throne is defined as I am in a sense a priest and an extension of the will of this thing that represents this force of control over the universe yeah it's almost as if if the technoc if the technocracy were a uh, a priesthood serving the weaver as opposed to uh, a, a mortal agency that is just trying to prevent reality from going off the rails, the cosmic in in Chronicles of Darkness is interesting because it is both closer and more distant. Yes, which I think is a a fascinating duality to uphold. So you are one of the few people that has written for Mage the Ascension and Mage the Awakening. As Mage the Ascension players, what are the things you think we should look to Mage the Awakening for, for interesting ideas? Things that I think Ascension players could benefit from, from Awakening? I mean, I would say Concilium design. And, you know, again, I'm kind of approaching this from the perspective of first edition of Awakening, because I, I haven't been involved in writing a second edition. I think Concilium design is definitely a thing to look at. You know, the, the way that the, the focus on the purely local uh, can be adapted to show these interactions in a web of allied and rival chantries. Uh, within a single city. You know, Boston Unveiled had that emphasis on how each cabal felt toward the various other cabals and the story seeds that you can kind of draw from those interactions. I think you can do cool stuff like that, kind of porting that mindset over from Awakening to Ascension of like, you know, okay, so you have these independent fiefdoms and how do they interact with one another? Mm -hmm. I would also definitely recommend people look at The Abyss as an inspiration for kind of the sorts of things certain flavors of Nefandi might, might work for or conjure up to menace the world. I particularly loved working on the Abyss and Abyssal Things because all the writers who were working on them were always, you know, we, we, there was always this drive to take it out of the, the softball of, of Lovecraftian horror mm -hmm. and into directions that would be more viscerally disturbing for modern audiences. We weren't looking primarily at tentacles and impossible angles. We wanted fear and revulsion and the temptation of both of those things. You have to kind of attack a lot of different angles to get at the things that get under people's skin and horrify them. Can you explain what the abyss is in Chronicles of Darkness? When the Exarchs ascended the ladder to heaven in the, the before times, and again, this is first edition, not uh, not second edition, so destroyed the the magical empire of Atlantis, which is basically just a stand-in for all of the, the cultural stories we have of the more mystically enlightened land that came before history as we know it. They separated the, the so-called fallen world, which is the world that we all live in, 
from the supernal world, which is kind of the world of infinite possibility and perfect magic. You know, before it had all been one thing and the Exarchs divided the two worlds from each other so that they could reign as immortal tyrants over, over all reality. The gap between those two worlds was the abyss, and it was kind of a wound in the universe that was never meant to exist. And it's kind of the negation of all reality. You know, everything that we perceive that dwells there is a watered-down incarnation of the annihilation of existence. And you, know, you can bargain with those things for power, and you can kind of set them loose in the world, but ultimately their objective is to turn all reality into unreality. So that all things cease to exist, and the torment of their awareness of existence can cease to be. Yeah, it, it certainly leans into the destruction of things, the, the version of the Nefandi who would like to return to the universe of a state of non-being as opposed to necessarily versus the Exarps who simply want to be the Nefandi that want to rule over everything uh, kind of in, in a certain way. And, and so you think that idea of that kind of abyss is something that can be brought into Ascension? You know, I think a very a very valid argument can be made for the Fondi who have this whole like, you know, the world is a terrible place. Existence is awful. Just look around you. We should just make it all stop. And, you know, here are some things that would like to help us with that. I think that you can get some good uh, get some good mileage out of that. The the other big thing I think that would make a good a kind of good port over, and I know this is a wildly outdated thing, but the uh, the Awakening Ascension Translation Guide from back in the day. I think people you know, who wanted to do that could do some cool, fun stuff with 10 spheres instead of 9. You could really work some wonders with, uh, with splitting entropy into death and fate. And I know I keep harping on that, but you know, like one of the things that I think is, uh, Awakening did very well, that Ascension only really got you know, touched on it with how do you do that, which you know, relatively recently into the life of Ascension, was a lot of necromancy. For the longest time in Ascension, there weren't really instructions for... I want to be the guy who animates corpses and binds ghosts into things and meddles with souls. Awakening, that was kind of all baked in right from the outset. You know, the idea of, of necromancy as a as an established magical practice that was fairly common. You know, that's all stuff that could be kind of brought over and would be potentially useful for uh, for ascension players looking at how to how to translate some of that uh, kind of necromantic weirdness into your ascension game. And the interesting thing about spheres from what I've read of Awakening is they were kind of rethought to make it so that conjunctional effects are less necessary. There is no case where you're constantly adding prime to everything. That if you have life, you can just create life. You don't need to worry about the, the having the prime mixed in with it. So as opposed to it being like ingredients in Old World of Darkness, it is more conceptually unified to me in New World of Darkness. And I, I like that. It certainly ups the character's power level because they don't need nearly as many spheres, but it does make it uh, much more streamlined in a certain way. Like one of my favorite ones is you cannot use forces to make something cold. That is the prerogative of death. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those things where you're like, ah, oh, there is a completely different way to, to, to talk about these things that seemingly all have identical names. I was, I was going to say, I mean, one of the things I really loved about death was things like manipulating shadow. Like, you know, mm -hmm. because again, you, if you're going to manipulate shadow with forces, you have to do it indirectly. With mm -hmm. death, you can just do it directly. So this came out in 2013. And the thing that I really like about it is, one, I love everything Malcolm Shepard seemingly has ever written. Two, the forcing you to translate one game into another forces you to say what the game is about. Mm. in a certain way. So, for instance, you have the idea of Yantras and True Names 
and and so on in awakening which i think is a, a genius idea that we can that is so fundamental to ascension that we don't even realize what it is it's the water we are swimming in as it were it so thoroughly requires you to talk about how the expectations the world has on what a person who looks like you or who takes your role can do that i think that is a powerful way of helping to build paradigm in mage the ascension and i think looking at it through a slightly different lens is is great and it's like ten dollars not even uh for the translation guide and uh, it, it doesn't move back and forth perfectly. I know any number of people who've tried to move uh, one onto the other, but it's fascinating things to, to think about if you're a storyteller like I do that uh, maybe you don't want to completely change the system, but there are a few tweaks that you'd like to do around the corner. I think that's fascinating. The fact that you have a completely different view on what the notion of paradox is, on how a lot of things are moved to being merits and flaws. I think that's that's pretty fascinating. It's a lot of, it's a lot of interesting stuff to get you to think about what may really is and I very much appreciate that it exists in that regard absolutely now on the other end is there anything that is in ascension that you wish you could have brought into awakening I did miss the idea of having everybody had their own view about how reality worked and your view was as valid as you could make it be I missed things like the order of Hermes the cult of ecstasy when you know when things were kind of condensed down to like as you said the five subsplats of like, okay, you know, we're the fighty ones, we're the leader ones, we're the brainy ones. So I think that I might have liked to see more emphasis on magical fellowships that were not purely utilitarian. The traditions were not just affiliations based on your proclivities. They were also, they said something about the culture of magic you believed in. Whereas if you're a member of the Adamantine Arrow, it's because you're awakened, you're an awakened person who thinks the best good you can do for the world is by being an awakened fighter. I, and I'm not sure how you like kind of elegantly bring the one thing over to the other. I do believe that elements of awakening are more easily brought into ascension. And I think that may be because ascension has a much greater degree of specificity about it. There's, it's a lot more granular, whereas awakening is uh, is very broad, very open. Everything you're everything you're bringing in to narrow it down to a more specific thing is kind of a case by case basis of what works for your chronicle. Yeah, I think that is one thing where the 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 broader strokes of awakening lend lend themselves better to being ported back the other way. Okay, that makes sense. So what are you working on now? Uh, these days, I am working on mostly stuff for Green Ronin, uh, both as a writer now primarily as a, as a developer. The most part is for the uh, Blue Rose, the uh, the game of romantic fantasy. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where most of my focus is these days. Kind of gone are the days when I'm, I'm working for like three or four companies at the same time, and I think a lot of that is just due to the pandemic has really hurt the, uh, the tabletop RPG industry as a whole. So there's just not as much work to go around these days. So, you know, definitely that's that's one thing I will I will encourage people to do is if you've got a little bit of cash burning a hole in your pocket, definitely help out your favorite RPG publishers because right now people do need help keeping the lights on. I'm doing as much as I can and I've purchased several books in the series that a friend of mine refers to as that game about bisexuals and dragons. Uh, so... <laughs> So I have a bunch of Blue Rose stuff to go through eventually. Uh, Stephen, thank you for allowing us to uh, plumb the depths of your memory. And if you ever get sufficiently bored that you want to do some more mage content and want to do a Storyteller Vault supplement on some of the ideas that you've got kicking around, we'd love to have you back. That, that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. 
You've been listening to Mates, the podcast, which doctors recommend should only be taken topically. The show is made possible by executive producers, which includes Anders, Andrew K, Andrew E, Brendan, Bryce Perry, Christopher P, Chris Zach, Ira Grace, Jenna F, Justin, John Magnuson, Michael Parker, Richard Bat Brewster, William, and Jay Sunsern. Today's executive producer shout-out is to William. William, I know nothing about you, so I'm going to talk about that one time we were diving in the crystal clear water of Cozumel, Mexico, when you saw a cocaine-enraged mako shark that was about to eat a group of visiting Dutch schoolchildren. You asked me for my pen before leaping into the water and fighting the shark long enough for the children to escape. In retrospect, I should have given you my pen, and I'm sorry to this day, but it was a gel pen, and they just don't deal well with water. That's William. If you'd like to become an executive producer like William, get a chat color in Discord and have me make up things about you possibly, as well as receive our EP-only podcast, So What You Plan, you can become one by clicking on Become a Supporter in the show notes or through the episode entries on our webpage. If you super like this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. You can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choice. If you like this, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also, go to Mates the Podcast for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.